Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you arrived at worship following the verbal announcement, which is about 50% of you normally, um, just wanted to give you one final opportunity to know what's going to happen as we move forward. Uh, the sermon today is going to be me sitting at a chair pulling out questions from a basket of cards that you have written down questions on. And so if you haven't had the opportunity to do that, the band's about ready to play an offering song, and uh, you, there's still plenty of time for you to write out a question about God, about faith, about church, uh, put it in those baskets, and then we'll have <laughs> a sweaty time during the sermon. It'll be great. Uh, we're in a message series since Easter called You Asked For It. And uh, we've been exploring questions, and, and we built this place to be uh, a safe place where you can ask any question that you've ever had about faith, uh, about church, about life. And so today, to end the series, we thought, let's just let you write down those questions, and we'll try to answer as many as we can in the time that we have left. So a couple of disclaimers, I guess, before we get started. Uh, number one, some of you have been thinking about these questions for a really long time, uh, years or, or longer. And so I'm going to try to answer really quickly and move on to the next question. And you might be tempted to think, so apparently that was an easy question and I shouldn't have been wrestling with it for so long. I, I don't want you to think that. Um, it's good to wrestle. It's good to, to seek out. Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, uh, keep on knocking. And so my hope is um, the answer that I give probably will not satisfy you completely, but maybe it will give you a new direction to go as you continue to try to find and answer that question. Uh, secondly, uh, we provide an opportunity for something like this on a regular basis through our Alpha course. We offer that a couple of times a year here at the Ankeny campus, and so uh, in September is when the next Alpha course will be, and so if you've got more questions, that might be a great uh, next step for you, something like Alpha. Uh, oh, also this Wednesday night, uh, if we don't get to your question today, Wednesday night at 6.30 will be the final pastor's Bible study uh, of the year. And so uh, you could come at 6.30 on Wednesday and ask more questions. I think I can't stall any longer. So uh, here we go. Oh, one, yeah, I can stall. <laughs> if you see me pull out a card, read it and put it to the side, most likely it means it's a question I've already answered uh, a similar question, so uh, just moving on. Or I can't read your handwriting. How do you slash we as Christians respond to our skeptics or non-Christians who argue against the truth of the Bible? Uh, stories such as Jonah living in the belly of a fish for three days. So uh, I think sometimes people ask, you know, is the Bible um, inerrant, uh, without error? And so a lot of people, a lot of streams of Christianity build their uh, faith on the inerrancy of Scripture. So then if anyone can come along and point out any way in which the Scripture is in error, they think the whole thing is a house of cards that comes tumbling down. I, I prefer the language of, we take the Bible seriously at Hope. We take the Bible seriously. And so um, the New Testament, let's start there. It's written by uh, people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So that's kind of the starting place. Did that really happen? And if it did, if there was a man who claimed to be the Son of God, who, who predicted his death and his resurrection and pulled it off, that's, that's something else. That's maybe someone who I want to pay attention to. What else might this guy have to say? 
And so if we start with Jesus is who Jesus says he is, and then the, the New Testament is written by people who knew Jesus, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, then maybe I'm going to take seriously what they have to say. And then to go back to the Old Testament, why should I take the story of Jonah seriously, or Noah and the ark, or the story of creation? Jesus took them seriously. Je Jesus had no trouble. He talks about the story of Jonah on multiple occasions. And he uses it to communicate a truth that's really important to us. So scholars will go back and forth on did the story of Jonah really happen or maybe was it a play or was it just a, a parable to make a point? Um, for me, I take it seriously. There are truths in that story that I can pull out. And just, just so you know, my, like my number one spiritual gift is faith. So it's not difficult for me to believe. We, we recite it in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. How did God do that? I don't know but I absolutely believe God created everything out of nothing. If God's powerful enough to pull that off, Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days is no big deal. And getting all the animals onto the ark is no big deal. How do you do it? I have no idea. But it wouldn't surprise me if it actually happened. So, but the question was, <laughs> do you want me to answer the question? How do we respond to skeptics? So, so gently, um, with respect, I think it makes absolute sense to say, of course it seems ridiculous, this story about a man in the belly of a fish for three days. Of course that seems ridiculous. Start with Jesus. See, see what you think about Jesus. See if you think there's anything ridiculous about Jesus, because I don't think there is. And if Jesus takes that stuff seriously, then, then maybe I can wrestle with it for a year or seven as I try to figure out what, what's the point of these kinds of stories. What's the difference between Catholics and Lutherans? Ah. So this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And um, I think there's, there's less difference than we think. There's less difference than we think. So Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, uh, wanted to, he, he was saying there are some things going on in the Catholic Church that are not good and we need to address it. And the church wasn't really willing to address it. It had become corrupt. And the Catholic Church, I think, has in fact uh, repented of some of the things that they were, they were doing back in, in Luther's day. So uh, Luther, the idea of Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone, uh, the, these were the realities around which Lutheran church was built. Uh, Pastor Mike likes to say, if it's uh, in the Bible, it's Lutheran. Right? If it's in the Bible, it's Lutheran. Well, the same would be true for Catholics, but then the other thing the Catholics would talk about is tradition. We have scripture and we have tradition, and they are equally authoritative. And we Lutherans, Protestants, we like, what are you doing with something besides the Bible? Part of what we forget, though, part of what we forget is there was no Bible for about 300 years. There were letters that were written around and, and that were shared, but then at the Council of Nicaea, a bunch of human beings came together and decided these are going to be the books of the Bible. So for 300 years, all we had was tradition. And then finally, we formalized the canon of Scripture, and now, now we've got Scripture too. Um, so for us to, to say, oh, tradition, uh, we have our own traditions too. If, if people who have not grown up in Lutheran world... Um, 
<laughs> they notice things about what we do as Lutherans and say, what's that all about? And, and the truth is, you would have a hard time explaining it. Where, where in the Bible does it say we should recite the Apostles' Creed when we do baptisms? Oh, yeah. Um, so, what's the difference? Uh, w- one of the differences is we believe we can go straight to God um, and don't have to go through a priest. Jesus is our high priest. So there's some distinctives, but for the most part, um, women in leadership would be something uh, we, we differ on from Catholics, that sort of thing. <laughs> Does God carry a smartphone? If yes, do I need a password? Ah. I wonder, and what, and maybe that's just a joke, but I wonder if they're asking, how does prayer work? Like, how, how do I connect with God? And um, how do I hear God's voice and that sort of thing? And it just takes practice. Uh, just like any real, it's a relationship, any relationship that you have uh, to communicate well, it takes time, it takes practice, it takes stumbling through it. Eventually you learn to recognize, someone asked at the eight o'clock service, how do you recognize God's voice? How do you know if it's God or, or something else? And remember before we had smartphones and before we had caller ID and the phone just rang and you didn't know who it would be, you would pick it up, but almost immediately you would recognize the voice of a friend or a, a relative, even though you couldn't see them. And, and that's the way you develop that relationship with God. Uh, during a cardiac attack, I went through a light and saw a dead family member who only said, go back. Yeah. Uh, this might be the same. Yeah. So people have these kinds of experience. There's all kinds of books that you can read about near-death experiences. Um, what's interesting to me is that Scripture, the, the writers of the Bible don't have a whole lot to say. Uh, about near-death experiences. They don't have a whole lot to say about the specifics of what eternity is going to be like. And we, I think, uh, or we're just wired up as human beings to want to know, and to want to know with, with great detail. And uh, w- we are uncomfortable with mystery uh, in general. But part of what faith means is there's going to be stuff that I do not know, I cannot figure out, um, and I have to take it by faith. And so part of, part of what that means is exactly what happens to us after we die. Uh, scripture teaches there's an eternity that is with God that's good. There's a, an eternity apart from God that you would like to avoid. And so, yeah, if a family member says, go back, I don't, I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know. Our brains are tremendously uh, fascinating things. And so maybe, maybe it was a memory of some point. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, I would talk to God about it if that happened to me. What am I supposed to make of that? Jesus died for our sins as humans. Is there anything that we shouldn't forgive each other for? If we hold on to our anger, aren't we acting like we are above Christ if we can't forgive? (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think it's acting like we're below Christ, right? Jesus on the cross calls out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And I don't know that many of us would be able to do that because we're not Christ. Um, 
But you clearly, Jesus says, how, how many times do we forgive someone who offends us? And Jesus' answer is 70 times 7. The cross that we have on top of our prayer chapel, um, from the foundation to the top of that cross is 70 feet, and it's 7 feet wide. And, and we did that on purpose because we want to be a, a church of grace, of forgiveness. Now, I think there is an absolute difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. A lot of times what, what people think is, if I forgive that person for what they did, now I have to be their best friend again. And that's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness means um, the consequences of their action, I'm, I'm setting them free from that. But that does not mean... So think about Joseph. Um, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, and, and one of them is Joseph. He has the fancy coat because his dad favors him. His brothers don't like it, so they kind of attack him and sell him as a slave. He ends up in Egypt, and then he rises up to become like the vice president, the second in command in the nation of, of Egypt, and he's overseeing this food distribution program, and there's a famine where his brothers are, so they come down to get food, and, and they are reconnected, and they, the whole family ends up moving down to Egypt, but eventually Jacob, the father, dies, and the brothers are like, once dad's gone, Joseph is really going to get us. The reason he's being nice to us is because dad's still around, but when dad's no longer around, he's going to get us. And so uh, Joseph finds out about it, and he's heartbroken because he's like, you know, that's not my, I'm not planning to do that. I've forgiven you, but the relationship wasn't restored. It wasn't reconciled. There was still a whole lot of work to do to reconcile the relationship. And sometimes, sometimes the relationship is so unhealthy that the Christ-like thing to do is to kick the dust off of your sandals and remove, set up such strong boundaries that you are in a safe place in that relationship. Uh, what's the difference between dedicating and baptizing a baby? If you baptize, do they still need to be baptized later in life when they understand? So, uh, we, we, I've talked about it already. The import, faith is, uh, Christianity is about a relationship with God. It's about a relationship with God. And so, um, there's a guy shortly after Luther, like the next generation after Luther, who has a fantastic name. It should be a serial. Count Zinzendorf was his name. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And it's like, you know, 1500s, almost 1600s, and the Enlightenment is sweeping through Europe where all of a sudden it's all about can you prove it? It's all about uh, reason and intellect, and uh, faith is quickly becoming, if, if I agree with a bullet point of propositional statements of, of truth, that's what makes me a Christian. That's what faith is all about. And that's a part of faith, but what Zinzendorf wanted to remind everyone of is that was a cultural thing in Europe during, during uh, that particular time. But for biblical history, faith was always a very relational kind of thing. And he wanted to remind them it's supposed to always remain a relational kind of thing. So the question Zinzendorf asked, because uh, again, they're, they're, they're saying, now we're Lutherans. Um, do we do baptism just the way we did when we were Catholics? Or how do, how do we figure this out? And so his response was to say, if you're capable of relationship, you're capable of faith. 
If you're capable of relationship, you're capable of faith. So is an infant capable of relationship? And dads, don't you dare say no. <laughs> There's, there is no woman who has given birth to a child who will tell you an infant is incapable of relationship. In fact, they'll say they're capable of relationship before they're born. So, I used to think, I used to think, I don't understand this infant baptism thing. Why don't we wait till they're old enough to say yes, when they're old enough to have faith? I don't think that anymore. Part of it is theological. Part of it is practical experience. I baptize these kids, and they look me right in the eye. They, they know something is going on. I can't tell you what's going on in their mind, but I will not tell you uh, they don't have faith. I absolutely think they do. Um, the, the other thing that was real powerful for me from a practical the theology standpoint is when we adopted saffron. I was thinking, because what, what do we say at the end of every baptism? We welcome you to the Lord's family. You belong. You're part of the family now. What if we had said, Saffron, um, you come live with us, but we're not going to adopt you. We're, you, you're not really part of the family, but when you're 12 or 13 and you're old enough to make a decision, then you can decide if you want to be part of the family or not. Now, she, of course, can still do that, but it just seems ridiculous to say you're not part of the family now. So the difference between um, dedication and baptism is a difference in an understanding of how faith actually operates, how faith actually works. One is more of a, uh, let's just do this. Oh, okay. Can you all see this perfectly? Uh, how does faith work? We, I always talk about paradox. Everything we believe is paradox. So paradox is two things that are both true at the same time, but it doesn't seem like they both can be true. So uh, the Trinity, we believe in one God, but that one God exists in three persons, and someone who is a skeptic or seeker or new to faith would say, come on, Christian, which one is it? Is it three or is it one? And we say, by faith, I can't explain it to you, but by faith, this is what we believe. One God existing in three persons. It's not three, it's one. A unity and a uniqueness. Same thing about Jesus, 100% uh, human and 100% divine. Uh, same thing about the sovereignty of God, I don't know how to spell, and free will. And here's, this one is what baptism is all about. Sovereignty of God says God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, whatever all the omni words are. God, God, nothing happens that God doesn't make happen. Well, if that's true, then I don't get to make a decision. There's a, there's a stream of Christianity called Calvinism. And Calvinists are, they believe in predestination. They, the sovereignty of God means nothing happens in my life that God doesn't orchestrate. So the joke is, the Calvinist falls down the stairs and says, thank God that's over. <laughs> right? Because it's going to happen, I have no control, now it's over, I can move on. Okay, so... What happens is uh, we have a tendency to not like, we, we like to, re which one is it? We want to resolve the tension. And so um, 
We don't understand the Trinity, so we just focus on either God the Father or God the Spirit or God the Son, and we don't, have, we don't know how to do all three of them together, and that gets problematic. Or we don't understand how can Jesus be both... Shouldn't it be 50-50? No, it's 100-100. And if we swing the pendulum too far to Jesus is just a human, we miss out on the power of God. And if we swing the, far, the uh, pendulum too far to Jesus is just divine then discipleship becomes impossible because if God says, do what I do, I, I'm not God. I can't do that. The pendulum here is, is it me making a decision for faith or is it God at work in me drawing me into a relationship of faith? And so people who would say, no infant baptism, we're just going to do um, baby dedications and then when they're older, that's when we'll baptize them when they can make a decision they swing the pendulum toward the um, free will side. It's a decision theology. And uh, people with infant baptism swing the pendulum a little more to, well, I, I would say we're perfectly in the middle. But maybe they're swinging it a little more to the sovereignty of God. Right? We believe in a God who encounters us, that God always makes the first step. Now, it's, it, ultimately, it's both. Ultimately, it's both. That was a long answer. We still have eight minutes. We're fine. Uh, why were the Israelites in the Old Testament allowed to kill as they were taking over the land of Canaan? Uh, I, just, I just read this yesterday. Um, God said something, I think it was in Deuteronomy, God said something like, don't think it's because of how great you are that you're able to uh, take out these other nations. Um, it's because of how evil they are. It's not because you're so great, Israelites. It's because of how evil these other people are. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I had us look at, I called it God's bumper sticker from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God abounding in um, compassion and mercy, slow to anger, slow to anger. And so God says that to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai. And then 40 years later, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. But for generations, for uh, the people were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and before that, there was horrible things happening as they worshipped their false gods. And so after many, 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 many generations of evil and atrocity, um, God allowed the people of Israel to come in and wipe out those uh, countries that were doing those despicable practices. Um, yeah. What does that mean for us today? Because uh, Jesus says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And is there a place for what we might call a just war? These are really difficult questions to ask and to answer. And ultimately, it makes me grateful for grace. Because I don't think we're going to be able to answer them all perfectly 100% of the time. If you go to heaven or hell, and there is no such thing as reincarnation, why are there people who can recall their previous life? Example, someone who was murdered as a child could bring people... I, don't, I can't read it could bring people to spot weapons, etc., and saved murder. I'm not exactly sure. 
Um, there's nothing in the Bible that would suggest reincarnation is a reality. Uh, that we have one life to live. And at the end of our life, uh, we die, and that's when we enter into eternity. Um, that, that each person is unique is one of the principles that Scripture teaches us, that God knows us in our, our mother's womb. Um, so I don't, I don't see any revelation in Scripture that would lead me to believe reincarnation is a reality. How do I pray to thank God when I feel a prayer was answered? Yeah, I, um, I just think we need to celebrate more, right? So in that 8 o'clock service, one of the cards I pulled out wasn't a question. It was someone just kind of writing their testimony, who they used to be, how God's gotten a hold of them, how their life is completely and radically changed, and they just wanted to say thank you. And, and so that, that's what I would do it. How, how do you say thank you to anyone uh, for something great? And it's impossible to express the, the depth of gratitude um, that we need to express for who God is and, and God's incredible love for us. But I, I think thanking God in prayer on a regular basis should be a big part of who we are. If you truly have faith, how can you doubt? If you truly have faith, how can you doubt? I always am reminded of uh, John the Baptist when I hear this question. I'll see if I can find it. John the Baptist, so he's uh, Jesus' cousin. When uh, Mary shows up and Jesus is in her womb, John the Baptist, who is in Elizabeth's womb, leaps for joy because Jesus is present. So even in the womb, he's got faith. Uh, and then he has this ministry where he's just pointing people to Jesus. I must become less. He must become greater. Look, he's the one you should follow. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, John the Baptist has great faith, right? Until he has, he has such strong faith, he tells the king that the king's marriage is illegitimate. <laughs> and the king doesn't appreciate that and has him arrested, and ultimately he has him killed. So while he's in prison, John the Baptist, this great man of faith, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region. This is Matthew 11. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? And Jesus doesn't get mad at John the Baptist and say, oh, ye of little faith. He says, go back to John the Baptist, tell him what I'm, what I'm up to. And then he, Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you that there is no one who's born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus actually doesn't see doubt as an absence of faith. He, he sees doubt as, I don't know, the other side of the coin, faith on one side, doubt on the other, but a, a part of faith. That asking questions is a big part of what it means to be faithful people. That we're never going to have all of our questions answered or else God's a pretty puny God. So as we continue to ask questions, that's how our faith grows. Doubt leads to our faith growing. 
uh, talk about the power of prayer versus self-determination. Again, it's, it's got to be both, right? So maybe it was St. Francis of Assisi says, uh, pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. Pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depends on you. At, at some point, you've got, you got to understand, um, I was talking with someone this week and she was saying, man, I've always been a part of just massive churches, churches of like 5,000 people worshiping. I, it's so fascinating to me, what must it be like to be at a church like Hope Ankeny where I've been here for 10 years and I think there was 127 of us the first Saturday night that I was here and now we've got about 1,500 on the weekend and, and she's like, what's it like to be a part of something that, that grows like that? And that, it's caused me to just stop and look around a lot more this week than I have been for a while. But, but part, I wor I've worked pretty hard. But I couldn't bring this about. God brought this about. And so um, for me, that's, that's the ultimate answer is there's a job that God asks us to do. There's a life that God asks us to live. Do everything as though we're doing it for the Lord, right? We're representing the Lord. That means work hard. We want to make God proud. Um, but at the same time, God's the only one who can provide any kind, any, anything that happens it's not a result of my effort. It's a result of this mysterious partnership between what God is up to and what I'm up to. Why doesn't Lutherans do the sign of the cross? Uh, Lutherans do. I don't. <laughs> I, I didn't grow up Lutheran, and so I just doesn't, no one ever taught me what it's about and when and what, why or where you should do it. I remember um, in Little League, uh, there was a Catholic on the Orioles, and he was kind of a, a cocky little guy anyway. And he would step into the batter's box, and he would do the sign of the cross. And I was just like, are you kidding? I want to beat this guy. You know? so, um, so it's just personal for me. I just, I don't, it doesn't add anything for me. But for a lot of people, it does. And I love uh, when we have communion, watching people who were either raised Catholic, because we have a lot of uh, people who were raised Catholic here, or in, in maybe more traditional Lutheran churches, man, when they come forward for communion, they'll do the sign of the cross before and after they get the bread and the wine. And there's something really cool and really powerful about that, and I've just never. I'll try. I'll do it one of these times. Don't laugh at me if I get it wrong. Uh, the older I get, the more questions I have. And I didn't anticipate that. Advice for a lifelong believer who still asks, who still doubts, who still questions. Uh, Moses was 80 when God appeared to him at the burning bush. <laughs> so, I just always think your next great adventure is still ahead of you. If if living by faith is really the greatest adventure that we would ever hope to live, there's no retiring from that. Uh, you could retire, but still, whatever you're doing in retirement, God is going to be continuing to speak to you, continuing to ask you to uh, have conversations, to do things. And so um, I think the doubts should always be there. I, 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 there. 
There's always a next step for us, no matter how old we are. There's always more to learn. And always, the, the people that I'm most impressed with, uh, I think when we have the Alpha class, um, we eat and then we move f- f- to the front of the room and we have a little worship time and I'm always sitting in the back kind of walking through my notes or singing along. And then there's these uh, empty nester, retirement-aged people who come in and clean the tables and completely um, out of the spotlight and they're singing along with the band as they're doing dishes. And, and it just about makes me weep because I'm like, I want that kind of heart uh, when, when I get to that place in my life. So that, I don't know what it means for you or where God might be calling you, but I think God continues to call all of us. And, all, and maybe it has everything to do with your grandchildren. Who, who, who knows what it might be? But I think God's always asking us to take that next adventurous step with him. There are far too many questions for me to ask, so I can only share this. Fourteen months ago, I was a lost soul with no hope. No matter how little I do know, I know that God has saved me. When all hope was lost, he was there and shined his light upon me. Now, instead of alcohol ruining my life, God is my pilot. If he can save a wretch like me, all things are possible through him. Praise God. That's pretty awesome. How come Hope did away with prayer requests in the bulletins? Yeah, we just switched the way we do this. So we switched the way we're actually thinking about bulletins in general. And uh, part of it is what, what are people actually looking at and reading? Uh, what's the best way to get information to people? And so uh, prayer requests are no longer in the bulletin. We've gone to a monthly bulletin, but prayer requests come in weekly. So the prayer request sheet is in the Welcome Center If you're looking at the Welcome Center, kind of in the lower left is where you can grab the prayer requests. We would love for you to uh, be praying that way. And if you're uh, writing a question like this, maybe you need to be on the prayer team. We would love to have you join the prayer team. Rich Selden sitting in the back is the head of the prayer team. And what we're trying to do is um, build up the way prayer is happening here. One of the goals we'd have is for people from the prayer team to be in the prayer tower all weekend long when we're having services and just praying for what God is doing and not just having prayer at the end of each service, but anytime anyone wanted to, they could go to the uh, prayer tower, prayer chapel, and and people could be praying for them there. Do loved ones who have died know about our lives? Can they see us? So again, I think this, this gets to how, how does eternity work? Uh, trying to think there's some parables there's some parables where it seems to indicate that maybe um, people who are in heaven can see what's happening on earth I would be hesitant to build my theology off of a parable which is a story intended to make a specific point not necessarily to give us specific details about how life works Um, but but part of what I think when we die when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, um, immediately, immediately we enter e- eternity. Uh, and then the question is, well, what about judgment day? What about judgment day? Do, do we wait until judgment day or do we go to heaven right away? And what it seems to indicate to me is uh, eternity is like 
With the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. So there's no waiting. There's no, we're just sleeping until judgment day. Eternity is very different in terms of time. So this is, this is not scripture. This is just how it makes sense to me. That when we die, we immediately go to heaven, but it's not, there's no time. So when my grandparents, who died in 1994, when they died, they entered heaven the same time that I'm going to enter heaven, even though I haven't died yet. <laughs> because in eternity, there's no clock ticking. We're all, judgment day is going to be the same day, the same time, the same instant for all of us. And it doesn't make sense to us because we're bound by time. So if my way of thinking about it is true, there's actually no time to be looking down on the people who are living because we're all there at the same time. That'll give you something to talk about at brunch. What does Hope think of same-sex marriage? So here's how we like to talk about this. Um, Bible is very clear on this. We are to love all people. We are to love all people, period. No sort of disclaimers on that. We're to love all people. And then secondly, and, and if we can't get to a place where we love all people, we don't move on to the second step. We stay there until we get to, can, are, am I actually capable of loving all people? Then step two is every one of us is a sinner. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we don't have a ranking of which sins are the worst sins. Love all people, all people are sinners. And then the way we read scripture, when, it, when bib, uh, the biblical writers talk about marriage, they are always talking about one man and one woman. Now, on our website, if you really want to dig into this, Pastor Mike has written a, a really long kind of Q&A about uh, how that works. And so, um, no, we don't, we don't think that we have permission from Scripture uh, to say yes to same-sex marriage. But what I want you to really think about is what does it look like to love our friends, our neighbors who are gay or lesbian? Would they feel welcome coming to our church? And if, if they don't, I think that says more about us than it does about... The, there's, some, there's more work we need to do on becoming people of love and people of grace. How do you learn to hear God's voice, and how do you know it's God? I, I always remember before we had caller ID... And the phone would ring, and you would just say, you know, uh, the, uh, and sometimes the other person wouldn't say who they are. They'd just start talking, and you would recognize their voice a lot of times. Sometimes you would mistake their voice, and that would get a little awkward. Um, but how, how was it possible that I could pick up the phone and recognize someone's voice? Because I was in a relationship with them. Uh, because I've listened to them, you know, multiple times, and... It's not just like, there's all sorts of different sort of realities around what someone's voice is like, and how quickly they speak, uh, the tone, high and low, the choice of vocabulary, that sort of thing. And so I think we learned uh, God's voice in a similar way. I always say the first time I feel like I heard God's voice was my freshman year of college. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a job, and uh, the the summer after my freshman year and didn't really have any ideas or leads. And one, one night I woke up 
I don't know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Yes, I went to bed that early as a college student. Uh, I was asleep and woke up in the middle of the night and could not get back to sleep. And so finally, I said, because I remember the story of Samuel, who um, the Lord calls out to him, and he thinks it's Eli the priest, and he goes running to the priest, and that happens three times. Finally, he says, uh, Eli says, it's God speaking to you. If you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So after about an hour laying in bed trying to fall asleep and unable to, I said, okay, Lord, if you've got something to say to me, say it, because I really want to fall back to sleep. And, and the first thought that went through my mind after I said that was, have you ever considered doing something for me? It was my own voice in my mind. It wasn't an audible voice, but it wasn't a thought that I would have put there myself. Next day, um, I go to the mailbox at the student union, and inside is a little uh, postcard from our church denomination saying, we are looking for people to volunteer, uh, not get paid, but volunteer to be counselors at our, our church camp this summer. And I said, okay, and I did. And that was an important step for me in, uh, in the process of ending up uh, being a pastor. So learning to say yes in those instances where you think maybe God is saying something is how you start to figure out, oh, this is how God... And God speaks to each of us a little differently. Um, some people, God speaks through pictures. Some people, it's through words. Some people, it's through um, uh, scripture very clearly or prayer very clearly. So... Figuring out how it is that God speaks to you uniquely is an important part. But it begins with just learning to say yes when you think that God is speaking. Can you explain predestination? Maybe. Uh, so, Jesus says to his disciples at one point, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Um, the, the, the word predestination gets used uh, a couple of places that uh, those God predestined from the beginning of time. Uh, and so uh, there's a stream of Christianity called Calvinism, which is very much, um, yeah, let's do this. So I like to talk about paradox. Um, what, everything we believe is paradox, right? What, what we believe about God uh, is the Trinity. God is one God, one God, but exists in three unique persons. And we say, well, a skeptic would say, or someone with questions would say, you got to pick. Which, is it one or is it three? And we say, by faith, I can't explain it to you perfectly, but by faith, it's one God in three unique persons. It's a unity and a uniqueness I can't play explain it perfectly. Uh, what we believe about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine, right? And I didn't take any math in college, but I think that's 200%. Well, how can someone be 200% of something? So it's not 50% human and 50% divine. Somehow, by faith, mysteriously, what we believe about Jesus, what scripture reveals to us about Jesus, 100% human and 100% God at the same time. Then we've got uh, free will. Uh, see if I can write. And sovereignty would be the word maybe I'd use. Um, God is sovereign, omnipotent, uh, omniscient, uh, all those omni words. And at the same time, we have free will. 
we get to choose, we get to make decisions. So the reason paradox is so important is if you swing in one direction or the other, you end up with what we call heresy or a false understanding, a, f- a false belief about who, how God works. So if, if you get rid of the Trinity, that ends up being a, a real unhealthy place to be. If you say Jesus is only human or he's more human than he is God, you get to an unhealthy place and vice versa. When it comes to predestination, if you believe God is absolutely in control, so the, the, the joke of Calvinists is the Calvinist falls down the stairs and says, thank God that's over. Because a Calvinist who believes in predestination thinks God is in control of every single thing that happens, right? So there was no way to avoid falling down the stairs. Thankfully, now it's behind me, right? But what we believe is that's somehow mysteriously, God is absolutely in control of all moment, and I have free will. So how I like to think about it, uh, explain predestination. God predestines everyone to be saved. And then some people choose, no, thank you. God predestines everyone to be saved. And then some people say, no. So if predestination is true, then that would mean God is, think about Judas. Judas who betrays Jesus. And Jesus says to him at one point, it would have been better for you never to have been born. What do we do with that? Does that mean that Judas, basically, his purpose on life was to be born, to betray Jesus, and then spend eternity in hell. I'm, I don't think that's true. Look at Peter. Peter messes up just as bad, and Peter somehow uh, gets to a place where he's able to receive forgiveness. I think that same, Jesus would have done the same thing to Judas. Do you love me, Judas? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Judas? Feed my sheep. That same opportunity was there. For Judas. Oh, putting them in the wrong basket. What does the Lutheran church teach about death? Do we go somewhere immediately where and when? Yeah. So I I talked about this a little bit. Um, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. For, For me, it's the the adventure land um, question. So we grew up in central Iowa, and my, I had two brothers. And my Uncle Bob would take my brothers and me to adventure land every summer. It was the highlight of our summer when we were eight or nine or ten years old. Then Uncle Bob moved to Chicago and became a Presbyterian pastor. But um, it was the highlight of our summer, and so the night before... We were going to go to Adventureland with Uncle Bob. I was so excited, I could not sleep. And I remember as a kid, 8, 9, 10 years old, laying in bed, unable to fall asleep, thinking, Scott, you dummy, just fall asleep. If you fall asleep, just like that, it's, you're going to wake up and it's going to be Adventureland Day. In a moment, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, it'll be Adventureland Day. The scripture writers use the language of sleep quite a bit to talk about what, what death is like. Uh, But again, I don't think it means we're somewhere floating around in outer space sleeping until the day of judgment. I just think that's a a metaphorical language they're using to try to explain something that they cannot fully explain. 
Last question. Where does the Lutheran Church stand on the literal translation of the Bible? So I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, we were doing a sermon on hell, and Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, if your hand causes you to sin, uh, cut it off. It's better for you to go into heaven uh, with one hand than to go into hell with two hands, or same thing for your eye. And so the point is none of us take the Bible literally because all of us have two hands and two eyes, right? And, and yet all of us lust and all of us uh, do sinful things with our hands. So none of us actually take the Bible literally. I think the, the better word is seriously. Do you take the Bible seriously? So why do, I, why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe the Old Testament? Why do we believe the New Testament? You think about people like Peter and John, uh, Luke, these guys, Paul, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and they write about it. And so I I take the Bible seriously because these guys who were eyewitnesses, they take it seriously. I take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus, who I think is the smartest and strongest man who ever lived, Jesus takes the Old Testament seriously. And part of what's fascinating is Jesus asks... um, Jesus seems to be interested in questions that you and I aren't really interested in, or, or vice versa. You and I seem to be interested in questions that Jesus wasn't really interested in. And part of what you would see if you would um, travel around the world to different, different parts of this world where people are trying to follow after Jesus, if we did something like this, they would be asking very different questions than we are asking. So the questions that we ask are a big part of our cultural context. But um, we take the Bible very, very seriously. And we work really, really hard to try to figure out which parts of the Bible do we take literally and which parts do we... So Bible's full of different kinds of literature. You've got historical kind of literature. You've got poetry. Um, you've got a book like Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature. You interpret, different, you interpret the newspaper differently than you interpret a, a comic book for example. And so same is true, and we're reading through scripture, what, con- what genre of literature am I reading? And that has an impact. How do you ask for something? How do you let go of something? Uh, regret? Um, yeah. yeah. So I think we, we, we like to, we wish faith was like a magic genie or a magic potion that would just solve things immediately. And it doesn't seem to be that that's how God has set up faith to work. Uh, when, when you look at the way God interacts with people, it's inviting them into this lifelong journey of growing as a disciple of Jesus or growing as, as a person of faith. And so the same is true when it comes to letting go of something or when it comes to getting over a major regret in your life. It's probably not going to happen just in a one-and-done kind of prayer, and then all of a sudden now everything's better. Instead, it's going to be a process. And so the constant invitation is to engage in that process of faith with God. It starts with prayer. Uh, Have people around you. The Christian life is not something we're supposed to do alone. So who are those people in in your life that can help you with, here's some things that I'm holding on to, or who could maybe point it out in a loving way, in a gentle way, in a grace-filled way, that there are some things you maybe seem to be holding on to, or maybe you're not forgiving yourself for? I actually think forgiving ourselves is one of the most difficult things. 
Uh, and so we hold on to that, and we, you know, that Chris Farley, oh, he's so stupid, you know. Um, we do that to ourselves all the time. And so God is very gracious with us and just like, okay, come on, let, let's move on, let's grow, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on toward what lies ahead. How can I help my best friend and her family as she is in her final days of life due to cancer? 59 years old. So I always, I always think of Job, right? Um, Job goes through tremendous loss, tremendous suffering, and his three friends show up. And what Scripture says is when they see how much pain and distress he is in, um, they sit down in the dirt with him and they don't say anything for seven days. And so, you know, theologians come along and they put labels on that. So we call it the ministry of presence. That sometimes the very best thing to do when someone's going through a situation like that is just be present. And we think there's supposed to be, there's not a right thing to say. There's a lot of wrong things to say. And so, and Job's friends actually end up talking and saying a lot of wrong things. But initially, they just show up, they're present, they're quiet, they just sit there with their friend. Uh, that's a good thing to do. I would ask questions. Uh, you ask, ask your friend, what are they thinking about? How can I be praying for you? Uh, that sort of thing. And continue to remind. So I also think this gets to the question of suffering, and, and someone may ask this later on. Um, if God is good, if God is loving, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow cancer? Um, so there's, there's a way I talk about that from a theological aspect, and, and it's this. God wants us to be in a relationship of love with him. God wants us to be free to choose to love God in response to the love that God gives to us. In order to be free to choose to love God, we have to be free to choose to rebel against God. Um, that God's not going to co coerce us into that relationship out of fear of punishment or anything like that. God wants us to freely choose to love him in response to his love. So if we're free to rebel against God, then that means we're free to do things that instead of loving the world around us, injures, harms the world around us. And that's ultimately the cause of suffering. Now, one of the things that the cross tells us, the cross is God's suffering. That, that God enters into our suffering through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so what the life of Jesus and what the cross tells us is when we are suffering, the, there's one thing for sure we cannot think, and that is God is indifferent to my suffering. God doesn't care about my suffering. God doesn't love me if I'm suffering. The cross tells us that God's not indifferent. God enters into suffering with us. And, and so I, I always think that's the challenge, right, when we're suffering. Where do I meet God in the midst of this? I can't tell you how many people I talk to who tell me the times when their faith has grown the most. So they look back over their life was when they were going through seasons of hardship and trials and suffering. Uh, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? What is your belief regarding pre- or post-tribulation rapture when Christ returns? Okay, so what, what Jesus says clearly is he's going to come again. 
came the first time uh, humbly as a servant to die, going to come a second time in power uh, to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness. And, and people, as they read through the Bible, try to figure out when and how. And I remember when I was, I think, 23 years old, and I was a, a youth pastor, and I got a buddy of mine came over, and we got out a flip chart and a dry erase board, and we opened up the book of Revelation, and we're like, we're going to figure out the timeline here. We're, we're 23 years old, and we can do this. Nobody else in the history of the world has ever been able to do it, but we're going to be able to. And so we have this desire to know, right? But um, the places where we go looking for answers to these kinds of questions, and this gets into how do you interpret Scripture. Uh, scripture the Bible is filled with all kinds of different literature. You've got historical narrative, you've got poetry, you've got apocalyptic literature. So just like when you are reading poetry versus when you're reading the newspaper or versus when you're reading a comic strip, you interpret it differently depending on what type of uh, literature you are reading. Same is true in the Bible. And so most of the conversation or language around the end times is in that apocalyptic literature, which is more uh, pictures, metaphors, trying to paint a picture of what's going to happen rather than give specifics around what's going to happen. So, <laughs> they forgot to erase this. Uh, very funny. Very funny. Let me, I'm going to answer the question about pre-trib and post-trib, but before I do, I want to write this down. Um, okay, so this outside ring we're going to call adiaphora. It is a fancy word. I don't really remember what it means. What, what I remember it meaning is uh, other stuff. So when you come to worship on the weekend, are you going to have a organ and sing hymns out of a hymn book, or are you going to have a band and have the lyrics, you know, projected onto a screen? Is the pastor going to wear a collar and a robe, or is the pastor going to wear a sweater vest? I mean, these audiophora, other stuff. You can be a Christian and do whatever you want around. The, do you have to have pews? Do you have to have a cross on top of your building? This is other stuff. Christians disagree on these sorts of things. The center uh, circle we will call doctrine, right? And you talk to most churches, most pastors, uh, the leaders of denominations, they will tell you, here's what our Lutheran doctrine is. This is what we believe to be true based on our reading, our interpretation of Scripture. So in doctrine, you will have things like, how does this baptism stuff work? Do we baptize babies or do we wait until they're old enough to make a decision for faith? Uh, what about women in leadership? Or does the scripture give us permission to have women in leadership? Um, all sorts of things. Uh, uh, end times would be the doctrine, uh, a doctrine. Um, eschatology is what we're talking about with end times. So where do you land is doctrine. And Christians have different beliefs around this, but they're still Christians, Right? So a church down the street from us might have a different opinion than us on women in leadership or on how baptism works, but we don't say they're not really Christians. We say they just interpret Scripture differently than we interpret Scripture. And we've got it right, but you know, no. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're not. We can have different doctrines. So then the question is, the diff, then the question is 
Well, there has to be something that we all have to agree on, right? There has to be something that if, if you differ in this particular area, then you're not really a Christian, and that's what this center circle is. And we'll give you a fun word that everybody hates and nobody ever uses, but it's called dogma. Dogma is the core beliefs that unites us as the church, that unites us as Christians. This is actually something that was decided 1,600, 1,700 years ago in church history. Uh, we call it creedal dogma sometimes. It comes from the creeds. Why do we, why do we recite the Apostles' Creed um, in the, part of every baptism liturgy? There's nothing in the Bible that says recite the Apostles' Creed. Why do we do it? it, it it's a unifying uh, statement of belief. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what is it that unites us? Is the Trinity. Three... It, it, the question they asked is, who do we worship? Who do we worship? And they figured out, well, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, but we worship God as Father, we worship God as Son, and we worship God as Spirit. That's what unites us. If we're worshiping something else, that's no longer Christianity. So, pre-trib, post-trib, Christians can have different opinions on this. My opinion is there's no rapture. Not in the way that we think of it where um, Jesus is going to rescue Christians and everyone else is going to be left behind and it's going to be awful for them for seven years or for a millennium or however long it takes. That, that's actually a doctrine that is pretty new in Christian history, uh, about 150 years old. Eight, 1850s, late 1800s is when that doctrine developed. And so it's new in Christian history. For most of Christian history, this, the idea of the rapture, the way we think about it, nobody believed that. But you can if you want. And we can still be Christians. Uh, what does forgiveness as humans really mean to you? Uh, forgiveness, so there's guilt and there's shame, right? If, if I do something, if I commit a sin or break a law, I'm guilty of that. Forgiveness removes the uh, consequences of my guilt. Um, shame is this thing that I put on myself and now all of a sudden it's my identity. And that, ha that forgiveness ha has a big role to play in that too. Um, I, I think one of the things that's been really helpful to me is distinguishing between forgiveness and reconciliation. Because a lot of times we ask the question, if someone really hurts me, do I really have to forgive them? If someone continues to hurt me, do I really have to forgive them? And they asked Jesus that question, and remember his answer? Forgive 70 times 7. He's not saying forgive them 490 times. Uh, 7 in the Bible is a number that represents completeness or uh, perfection. Forgive until the process of forgiving does what it's supposed to do. So um, we have a cross on top of our prayer chapel, that tower out there. At the top of the cross is 70 feet from the foundation of this building, and it's seven feet wide. And we did that purposefully because we want to be a, a place of grace where forgiveness is happening on a regular, it's a part of who we are. Now, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, forgiveness is, yep, I'm no longer holding that against you. Reconciliation means the relationship is restored to where it was prior to the offense. 
And, and sometimes that's not possible this side of heaven in some of our relationships. So you can forgive them without reconciling the relationship. Sometimes forgiveness means I, I, I'm, I'm forgiving you, but I'm setting some hard boundaries here because it's ridiculous to continue to put myself in harm's way. I think about Joseph in the Old Testament uh, who gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And, and he forgives them. They eventually come down to Egypt. The whole family moves down there, and Joseph forgives them. But when their dad gets to the point of uh, close to his death, the brothers start to fear, Joseph's just being nice with us while dad's alive, but once dad dies, he's going to pay us back for the evil that we did to him. And Joseph was just shattered by that. He had no intention of doing that. So forgiveness had happened, but reconciliation takes a lot longer. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is this truly the unforgivable sin? Yeah, that's what Scripture says. Only one sin is unforgivable. Uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which simply means you get to that point in your life where you say, I do not want to have anything to do with God. By the way you live, by the way you think, you're, that just kind of, I'm absolutely down. That's, so I like, Pastor Mike spoke on this uh, a year or two ago. He said, if you are asking the question, have I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? The answer is no, because just by asking the question, that shows that your heart is not in that place where you would be, God, I'm, I'm just done with you. Now, the other part of that is that's the only sin that's unforgivable. So stop treating other sins like they're unforgivable. Stop treating the things that you've done like God won't forgive that, because he will. What is your opinion on the refugee situation, vetting, and who is allowed in the USA? So I think that the church has a very specific role and that the government has a very specific role. So I'll speak from, from the church's standpoint. Jesus says to welcome strangers and love your enemies. What, what if the stranger is my enemy? Love them. So I think the church should be stepping up and saying to the government, how can we help? This is a humanitarian crisis, and we're called to love the world. How can we help? Um, and if that puts us in harm's way, <laughs> welcome to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, and fo follow after me. Um, Hope actually signed a petition uh, that said um, the, the, some of the um, executive orders that were being put in place uh, regarding the refugee situation back in January, February, we did not think that was in line with how uh, followers of Jesus are supposed to be. If you have questions about that, I can find the link to that uh, document for you. If someone is unhappy with something you did, how will they react when you see them in heaven? So, uh, heaven is a perfect place. Heaven is a new creation, a, a new earth. Heaven is where we are, where everything is the way God intends it to be. And so, I, we're going to be so enamored with being in the presence of God and, and the presence of the people we love. We... We, there's, there's nothing about things that happen on this earth that were hurtful or offensive that are going to impact us in heaven. It's, it's, we're just going to be glad to see everybody.
<laughs> we're going to be glad that we're there. No. How can a student go about balancing his or her personal life, social life, school, activities, church, etc.? Yeah, it's not just a question for students, is it? Um, uh, one book I was reading... Um, John Ortberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted, where he talks about how, how do spiritual disciplines work. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is a well-ordered heart. So one of the desert fathers in the 200s or 300s, um, early on in, in church history, talks about a well-ordered heart. And a well-ordered heart is loving the right thing to the right degree in the right way with the right kind of love. That's a well-ordered heart. And so what Orberg suggests is rather than, because we use the word balance all the time in our day and in our culture. How do, how do we get balanced? So it's like I need to have three hours here and two hours here, and that's a balanced life. Instead, he's saying, no, what we really need is a well-ordered heart. And a well-ordered heart might mean at some points I'm going to have to go two weeks just focusing in on one thing, and there's no balance there at all, or what, what we might describe as balance. So... Um, maybe you think of it, uh, I'll get this language wrong, right? But if you have a, a ruler and you have it on a fulcrum and you move the fulcrum, the balance kind of... So we're constantly just readjusting. It's not setting it once and then we're going to be set for, for our whole life. It's constantly readjusting. And, and so now I need... I've been studying or working way too long. I need to get a little more social life going on. Um, so it's not compartmentalizing our lives, but it's holistically organizing our life. I, I, I grew up in a church, the Quaker church, that had a value on simplicity. And so I just think one of the things you can do is look at your schedule and say, how do I simplify my life? Why is it that I'm running around from activity to activity to activity? What am I thinking I'm going to accomplish by... Doing, do I even know why I am so out of balance? Um, if once saved, are you always saved? Can you lose your salvation is the other way that gets asked. Uh. We better read this just because I love that it's in the Bible. Uh, this is Peter. Remember Peter? Do you remember Peter, Scott? It's in here. I'll find it. Okay. Second Peter chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse 20. When people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when they're saved. And then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the short answer to the question is, is yes. But the long answer to the question is really important. So 
It, it involves how does forgiveness work? Because I think a lot of times we think we go through life and holy cow, I really messed up this week. Now I bet I've lost my salvation. And that's not how it works. We, we, we sometimes think we're bouncing in and out of our relationship with God. Um, you think about uh, the last rites that uh, Catholics offer to someone. What, where does that come from? Where's the idea of last rites come from? Part of where it comes from is how does forgiveness work? How does confession, you go to confession and you say, here's all my sins. Well, now you're forgiven of all of those sins you've committed up to that point, but you leave the confession booth and who knows what. You get angry at someone for the way that they're driving and then you're looking at them and making a face at them and you swerve off the road and you're killed and you die. Now, are are you out of relationship? Because the last thing you did in life was get angry at someone. And so we think we're bouncing in and out of relationship. Uh, just so you know, we don't believe that's how sin works. That's how uh, faith works. We're in a rela- the reason we confess our sins is not to get back into relationship. The reason we confess our sins is because we are in a relationship. If I do something to my wife that is hurtful, you know, forget to clean up the kitchen when she asks me to clean it up. And uh, that, I mean, that's an example. It never happens. But if something, <laughs> and she's, she's upset with me, and I say, honey, I'm sorry, I'll do it right now. Um, I don't, it's not, it's not like we stop being married until she forgives me for that, right? The reason I say I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness is because we're in relationship. That's how it works with God as well. So, uh, once saved, are you always saved? No, but here's, the, here's some assurance for you. What Jesus promises is to be with us always, and that if we are seeking after God with everything that we have, we're, we're not going to turn away. We're not going to slide so far away that grace can no longer reach us. Where do dinosaurs fit in as far as when the Bible was written, etc.? So this is a great question. Um, when, when you read through, they're all great questions, but when you, when you read through the Bible, a lot of times people start at the very beginning. <laughs> and the very beginning is Genesis 1, which starts with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so it's the account of creation in the Apostles' Creed. That's what we start out with. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So Genesis 1 gives us an account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2 gives us an account that's a little different of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so the question is, how are we to interpret it? How are we to interpret what's... Is it a literal 24-hour period of time? Day one, day two, day three, day seven, all the way through, right? Seven days of creation. The Hebrew word is yom uh, for day, like yom kippur, the day of atonement. Uh, so the Hebrew word for yom can be um, interpreted as a 24-hour period of time. It means that sometimes. But other times, the same word gets used to describe an era or, or an, an epoch, right? Like uh, back in pioneer days or back in revolutionary days, right? That, that word is not representing a 24-hour period of time, but an extended period of time. So do we read Genesis 1 to mean 24 um, hours. That raises all kinds of questions. First thing God does is create light, but the sun hasn't been created yet. What's that all about? 
it just you just start to get fascinating. So some of the um, a cu- couple of other ways that maybe you could read through Genesis one. Don't necessarily read it as a science textbook. Uh, science answers certain questions. How did this happen? When did this happen? Theology answers certain questions. Why did this happen? Who caused this to happen? So part of what we read in Genesis 1 is this um, very structured account of how creation happened. Very structured. And, and it's also this bringing together of two things, right? Light and darkness, heavens and earth, bringing it together. And that seems to be something that God is up to all throughout. And we see a similar thing at the very end in Revelations. Uh, a heaven descends to this earth and a new heaven and a new earth, a coming together. And this, this creation will be God's home. Second thing I'd say about Genesis 1 is uh, a, a lot of scholars today are saying it's written as a way of telling. Remember, there was an original audience. Who was the original audience uh, that received the book of Genesis? And they were people living in the ancient near Middle East and surrounded by um, countries. Every country had a god or multiple gods. And so one way to read Genesis 1 is to say, this is a way of saying the Yahweh, the God of the nation of Israel, is better than your God, Egyptians, better than your God, Philistines, because who did the Egyptians worship? They worshiped Ra, the sun god. Well, Yahweh created the sun. Who's better? My god's better than your god, right? My dad can beat up yours. Uh, and, and rivers and rain and all, all, think of all the gods that these nations had. And this is a way of saying, okay, great, but we've got a god who created all of that. So where do the dinosaurs fit in? <laughs> Human beings are created in day six. So maybe dinosaurs sometime before that, huh? The creatures of the ground is one of uh, the things that gets created. And I, w- I would say it happens sometime in there in Genesis 1. Exactly when, where, how, I'm not sure. Where does my pet dog go when he dies? <sighs> so you would think I'm the wrong guy to be answering this question because I'm not a pet lover. But I know many of you are, many of you are. So I used to think this was a silly question until I read my Bible. And uh, there's the account of Noah and the flood in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. At the end of the flood, when the rainbow shows up, and it's a a sign that God's never going to, again, going to destroy the entire world uh, with a flood, God enters into a covenant. And I would have expected God to enter into a covenant with Noah and his family, with people, but it says God also enters into a covenant with all the animals. God, God enters into a covenant with all the animals. So, absolutely, your dog's going to heaven. Now, uh, cats, I'm not sure. <laughs> Just kidding. But, but there will be no allergies, so maybe I'll actually like cats in heaven. Uh, what's the difference between infant dedication and infant baptism? Okay, let me see if I can do this. Does this flip? Should I just turn it around? That'll be faster. Can you see me okay? Okay, infant dedication or infant baptism. 
I, here's where I think we have to start. Uh, I talk about this quite a bit if you hang around. We, we talk about paradox a lot. What do we believe about God? Uh, we, we call it the Trinity, right? And, and when we go through the, the creed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we say we are a monotheistic religion compared to other religions which are polytheistic. We have one God, and, and that's right. Everybody else has multiple gods. But then we say our God is a three-in-one. And a skeptic or a seeker should be asking, come on, Christian, you can't have it both ways. Is it three or is it one? And what we say is, I, I can't explain it to you, but by faith, what we believe is God is both a uh, unity and a uniqueness, three in one. Uh, a couple other paradoxes, Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. Uh, this is the one where baptism pops up, the sovereignty of God versus free will. Whoops, will, free will. So, sovereignty of God. God is omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent, all the other omnis. It, nothing happens that God doesn't know about and that God doesn't allow to happen. Then you've got free will, which says, I'm free to make decisions. I'm, fr I'm free to make choices. Well, which one is it? And we say it's a paradox. Both are true at the same time. I, I can't explain it to you, but by faith, this is what we believe. And we have to hold the tension because when the pendulum swings too far in one direction or another, you end up not with the God that gets revealed to us in Scripture. You end up with a, a Jesus who is only human, which means he's not powerful enough to save us because only God can save us. Or he's only God, which means how do we follow him if he lives the life he lives because he's God? Well, I can't do that. Similarly here, there's a uh, a pendulum here. In sovereignty of God, we get to places like predestination where God's in complete control and some people are born. I mean, you don't have any choice in the matter. God decides uh, all of it versus free will where we say God doesn't have any choice in the matter. It's all up to me. Well, it's got to it's be both. So dedication, uh, infant dedication would be, uh, this is going to be the final question, by the way, uh, so the band can get ready. Infant dedication would be people with the a sovereignty of God kind of mindset would say, you have to wait till you're old enough to make a decision for faith. No, that's free will, right? Sorry, that's free will. You got to wait till you're old enough to make a decision for faith. Sovereignty of God would be, it's kind of what we talk about, right? God encounters us. God encounter, God's always reaching out. God is starting it, but it's both, right? There's a decision to be made, and so um, the difference between baptism and in infant dedication and infant baptism is we actually believe an infant has faith, that faith is not just an intellectual assent to a, a statement of propositional truths, that faith is a relationship, and if you are capable of relationship, you're capable of faith, and an infant is capable of relationship. And if you have more questions, I'd love to talk to you about it more later. But right now, let's stand together. I want to pray for us, and let's sing this song together. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is not scared of our questions, not offended by our questions, not shaking your head at our questions, but you're a God who uh, allows for doubt because that's what allows us to keep on asking and seeking and knocking and growing in our faith. I also thank you that you're a God who is so big and so great that we will never understand you fully. 
Because if we could, if our small minds could understand you fully, then you would be a small God. And I don't know about anyone else in this room, but I need a great big God. So we're going to sing about our great big God right now. Amen.